Bible, and I forgot to look. Oh, page one and two. That makes good sense. So um, if you have a blue Bible around you, it's on pages one and two. We're in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25 today. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord, had form, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us. Uh, any uh, scripture that ends with people being naked and not ashamed is a great setup uh, for the opening. We are talking about friendship. And uh, coming off of almost a year in the Sermon on the Mount and... I just want to name something obvious as we start this series. For the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, recovering a vision for biblical friendship. And uh, there's just like an obvious thing that many of us might be asking, why are we doing a series on something that's so basic and trivial as friendship? Like if you grew up in a church, you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed, one of the things in that creed that you said every week was, I believe in the communion of saints. (laughs) And so there's a tendency and a proclivity for us to think that we're pretty good at doing friendship, to think that we're pretty good at making relationships, um, and maybe even to confuse. Some of you are like type A extroverts, to confuse your extroversion with an ability to make friends. Um, but this is Father's Day, and uh, this is the time when Hallmark tells us it's time to celebrate our dads. And um, the, the most vulnerable population in the world probably, and the one who knows deepest the, the need for a series like this are middle-aged men, fathers, right? Like some of the most profound loneliness, just statistically speaking, is in, in the most vulnerable population to despair uh, and suicide and depression and mental health issues are middle-aged men, in fact. Um, we develop deep friendships at 25, and then from there, we go off the cliff when we hit our 30s. Uh, anybody who doesn't believe that just means you haven't hit 30 yet, um, and so it's just a lot of us in this room, and you're like, that's not going to be me. It will be you. Um, and so we'll talk more next week about the causes, the acute causes and symptoms and the opportunities with uh, kind of this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. But the reason we're talking about this is because we believe we stink at it. We believe as your pastors kind of praying over this and thinking about uh, what to speak about, just kind of like this reality that we stink at it, both inside the church and outside the church, there is a pervasive and profound sense of loneliness and isolation. 
And, and if you don't believe that, your head is in the sand. Like there is a conversation going on right now around the world about uh, the rising epidemic of, of a global health crisis. I mean, it's literally been called a global health crisis. If you don't believe me, Great Britain just appointed the first minister of loneliness. So now the government's going to get involved, which I'm sure is going to make it awesome. Uh, we're trying to deal with just a basic relational reality by, by on-ramping uh, government services and looking to the government to help us with friendship. And that's where we find ourselves. Kirsten Powers, who's a journalist, uh, wrote a very moving piece after the suicides, almost back-to-back of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. And she said in this article, it was basically a confession, a very raw vulnerable piece about her own struggle with suicide and her near attempts at suicide and how she survived that. She said, this is symptomatic that something is broken in our culture, right? And and she's like, this is not the end. This is the beginning of more uh, despair. She thinks it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's not just outside the church. We tend to think of this as like, oh, well, you know, there's secular people and they're not following God, so this is their problem. This is the problem inside the church as much as outside the church. This week I spent the entire week really preparing for this sermon in the last couple weeks reading essays, okay? That's what nerdy pastors do. We read essays and more than the data points. I could give you all the statistics, but more than the data points, the stories of loneliness that you see inside the church. I read books like West Hill's Spiritual Friendship, and, and just read about the loneliness of what it's like to experience being gay and being in a church. And the disappointment, the disillusionment, the, the desire for friendship, and yet the suspicion as a man that any advances that I make towards other men are automatically some kind of Freudian, rooted in some kind of Freudian eroticism. And like, what do you, what do, you do with that? And it's not just gay people, it's, it's, single, uh, it's, it's straight people uh, as well, heterosexuals, homosexuals, like there's deep, deep, brokenness when it comes to uh, our desire for friendship inside the church. I read stories about single people wrestling with just deep loneliness and a desire to be connected and yet feeling that the church is not always a safe, hospitable space to be honest about depression. Uh, We tend to categorize uh, depression or loneliness or isolation as some kind of a sickness to be cured uh, or to be fixed rather than as an imitation from God and singleness is kind of like a, a vocation which has both sufferings and opportunities. And so there's all of this loneliness. And if you don't believe me, like, again, just be single in the church for like five minutes. It's, it's a problem. Um, but it's also a problem for married people, right? Single and married. The, the, the only thing I can think of that would be worse than being single and alone is being married alone. And yet how many essays I read of married couples, men and women, experiencing in the midst of sharing a bed and a life with somebody, a, a loneliness that is unspeakable and heart-wrenching to not feel safe even in your own home or to feel like a stranger with the person that you share a marriage with. And then like how many lonely young mothers and young fathers there are, right? Their whole lives are consumed with meeting the needs of their children and up all night and and just, you know, kind of how that impacts your quality of life and your ability to connect. And if you throw on top of that a working young mother, right, who's balancing and juggling the realities of, of work and home and just the deep, deep loneliness and the dark places and the isolation. And then you read stories about people who have uh, children struggling with disabilities and how isolating that can be because nobody knows what to do with you and you feel damaged, you feel alone. And these are the realities of what it, what it feels like to be lonely. Just reading these just wrenched my heart. Reading stories about minorities in majority contexts like this and what it's like to try to navigate the realities of being uh, an African-American in a predominantly white church. 
white people are alone too, right? You can read those stories of alienation. I mean, all over the place, you just see these stories, and you realize this is a problem, and it's not okay. God's not okay with it, and we as a church shouldn't be okay with it either. And the bottom line in all this is that <laughs> we're not very good at making and sustaining friendships. Our health survey that we did a year ago, we surveyed our congregation across a number of different domains, and uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively. And one of the most obvious things that jumped out, we had hundreds of pages of data on our congregation, um, and one of the obvious things as we were praying over that and talking about that at our pastor's retreat last year was the profound loneliness. I mean, over and over again, we had people saying, uh, I feel lonely. I feel like no, I feel isolated. I feel like nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. I feel alone. I'm in a crowd of people in church singing songs to God, and yet I feel utterly alone. We're not good at making friends. We're not good at keeping friends. We're not good at sustaining basic friendships. And we live in a cultural environment, right, that kind of undermines our best efforts at making friends. Like there are, and we'll talk more about this next week, cultural scripts and a, just a way of being that is kind of ingrained into the American mind. Things like efficiency and productivity and, and, and things like that that make it really hard, right? Like gentrification and, and hyper-urbanization, all kinds of things that, that make us, that kind of undermine our efforts at every turn to make and keep good friendships. And so our heart in this series is to kind of recover a vision for friendship. For some of us, our sights are set way too small. We settle for things that are, we call friendship that are actually not friendship. Um, so we want to recover a vision for a friendship. We believe it's the heart of what God is doing in salvation and redemption is not only creating us for friendship, but saving us for friendship and not just friendship in the here and now, but eternal friendship uh, with other believers that's rooted in the heart of God himself and the way that he is he exists as a, as a relational being. We also want to uh, teach and train uh, towards some of the skills. R friendship is a skill, right? Like, if you read the book of Proverbs, Hugh Black, who has one of the most uh, moving treatments on friendship I think I've read, um, he's kind of a philosopher, theologian, uh, author. Um, he says in there that if you read the book of Proverbs, for instance, uh, the theme he believes in Proverbs is friendship. And so, like, I, I dare you to read Proverbs a, a day, a week, for the next month and tell me that it's not a book about friendships, but it's a skill. Like, there are basic practical skills that need to be acquired, that need to be refined. We just assume that we're good at it, but, like, how many of us grew up in families where we weren't taught the basics of friendship? We weren't taught what reconciliation looked like. Jonathan prayed for that. We weren't taught what, what it looks like to relate to somebody who thinks differently than us. We weren't taught what it looks like to walk in practical forgiveness, right? We have all of this idealism around friendship, but we've not actually ever experienced real friendship, even for many of us in our families of origin. We just kind of coexist as strangers in the same household. If you want to read more about this, I highly recommend Sherry Turkle's works. She's, a, she's at MIT and is a, a, a chair there, and she's written, she's a scientist, kind of a sociologist, has written on this. She has two books that are fantastic. One is um, uh, Alone Together, and then her other one is Reclaiming Conversation. And she talks about this very reality of how we're demanding and asking more of technology and less of each other. And, and how that's kind of stunning our ability to be human together. And so we want to recover the vision, teach the skills, and live into the rhythms of friendship. It is not intuitive. It is not easy. It is one of the great challenges of being human, but we cannot live without it.
So let me just give you some quotes in case you don't believe me, you think I'm making this up or being overly dramatic. Some of you are like, I have great friends, and I, I know all kinds of people, and look at my Facebook profile. I've been friended by all kinds of people, and every time I post something on Instagram, I get a bunch of likes. Okay, that's not friendship, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. So let me, uh, if you don't want to take it from me, take it from some others. Paul Tripp, who's a pastor, says this, we live in interwoven networks of terminally casual relationships. I love that phrase. We live with the delusion that we know one another, but we really don't. We call our easygoing, self-protective, and often theologically platitudinous conversations fellowship, but they seldom ever reach the threshold of true fellowship. We know cold demographic details about one another, right? Married or single, type of job, number of kids, general location of housing, etc. But we know little about the struggle of faith that is waged every day behind well-maintained personal boundaries. Mother Teresa, who gave her life to the poor in Calcutta, once said this, the worst disease she'd ever encountered was not leprosy, AIDS, or cancer, but loneliness, which is often related to those things. Richard Lamb uh, is an author who's written quite a bit on friendship from a Christian standpoint. He says, for millennia, people have understood that the truly wealthy were people with deep friendships. But these kinds of friendships are like the stained glass windows that adorn the cathedrals of Europe. They are certainly beautiful, but they take time and skill to create. Such time and skill is, as is hard to come by these days. As much as community has become a buzzword these days, a deep experience of community seems elusive. Our deeper poverty, imagine that. We're wealthy in all kinds of ways, but he calls this a poverty. Our deeper poverty has left us without the relational resources to thrive, even as our technological wealth compounds. We have more and faster ways to communicate with one another, but insight, depth, and intimacy grow ever more scarce. So here's the question we want to kind of ask today, and we want to ask throughout this series. What would it look like for us to cultivate the kind of rich soil in this community that could lead us to become a community of the friends of God? right? What would it look like for us to have a long-term vision? Like nothing I'm going to say in the next couple weeks or Josh is going to say or Christian and Robin is going to say in the next few weeks is going to lead to some kind of immediate microwaved community, okay? Anything that can be heated up fast can grow cold fast, right? So this is a long-term project that we want to commit ourselves to, but we want to just cast a vision and say, what could it look like? What could it look like if we, I know like Christians typically are the least creative people in the world, okay? But we have a God who is so creative and so beautiful and has an imagination for friendship that is so much deeper and richer than ours. We are impoverished when it comes to ideas of friendship in the modern world. So what would it look like for us to call this place a safe place, a community of the friends of God, looking to God to be a friend to us and also sharing that friendship richly with one another. That's, that's the goal of this series. So what I want to do today, just for a few minutes out of Genesis 2, is I want to give us a framework for understanding friendship. And I want to put loneliness um, I, I kind of want to rip loneliness out of the conversation that's happening globally, which is really focused on loneliness as a symptom of brokenness and pathology. And I actually want to put it in the context of the scriptures and the story of God and say there's a deeper understanding of loneliness that's not about brokenness but about beauty. It, it's, a, it's not about something that's gone wrong. It's about a deep longing in us that's inescapably part of what it means to be human. And to deny that or try to push that aside is to live a subhuman life. 
So let's look at the origins of friendship. Genesis chapter 2, God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good. It's dangerous. It's unsustainable. It's undesirable. It's impossible. So what's happening here in Genesis 2 that would lead God to say such a thing? If you remember the story of creation, we taught on Genesis a few years ago. Genesis chapter 1 is a song. It's poetry, right? And it's, and it's a song that God is essentially, that Moses, uh, we believe the author and editor of the Torah, is giving us as a window into the creation of the world, right? And so he uses this beautiful, uh, figurative, but historical language to describe the creation of mankind, kind of our origin story if you're into like, you know, comic books, right? So we see in Genesis 1, God creates the universe not out of violence, not out of turmoil, not as some kind of political rivalry between the gods. God designs the universe out of love. And, he, and he, he pronounces a series of benedictions, right? Goodwill, good charity over creation. It's this happened and it's good and this happened and it's good. And he creates, verse 26 of chapter 1 says man or mankind in his image. And then he says after our likeness. I would circle that word our. This is not God being schizophrenic. Uh, this is God uh, referencing a community, right? And so he creates mankind in the image of the Trinitarian God. And then, and then it says he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then Genesis chapter 2 kind of zooms in on the creation of Adam and gets more detailed and gets uh, more into the logistics of how that happened. And so we see in Genesis chapter 2 that God creates Adam first. He places him in a garden paradise, right? So this is, you could see this is like the hospitality of God. God throws a party and he invites humankind into it, right? He establishes all the conditions. He lays out the best wine. He, he polishes up the table. He makes sure that there's no weird smells, right? He takes or, a disorder and, and chaos and he brings order. And then he invites us to feast with him at the dinner table known as the garden. There's a lot of interesting language, and we pointed this out last time, uh, in parallels between the garden and the creation of the temple. It's exactly the same language uh, in the Hebrew. And so uh, what, what, what I think uh, Moses is inviting us to see is this is the language of sacred space. God is inviting us to his sanctuary. This is how he created human beings. Not to live as autonomous beings out there trying to figure out the world on their own, or, or to figure out, you know, what the latest PhD at IU or Notre Dame or, or uh, Purdue tells us about what it means to be human, but rather to place us in the center of his presence and to say, I am here, I am with you, I am for you. And he blesses Adam with his presence, and he blesses him with provision. He gives him food, shelter, safety, comfort, everything that he needs to thrive as a human being. And then he tells Adam, I want you to take that blessing and I want you to multiply it. What you've experienced with me in our relationship right here, I want you to take that blessing and extend it. In other words, take the garden and reproduce it out to the ends of the earth. Take all the good that's here, all of my presence and provision, and I want you to, uh, to make it available to the rest of the world. I want you to multiply it out. But then we come to this curious little statement here where God 
seems to almost admit that there's an incompleteness. I've always struggled with this text, like uh, reading this, like did God make a mistake? Was God some kind of like product designer? And he rolls out, you know, like 1.0 and it's got some bugs in it. And so this is like some kind of an admission of a hidden design flaw. Like God's like, oops, you know, and then he, he, he installs the upgrade and now we're like back into it. Um, is, I don't think that's what's happening here because this is before the fall. This is before sin. This is even before we have marriage and we have sex. We see God addressing this. And notice, God is the one that takes the initiative to bring about this awakening. This is kind of an awakening here. And and so it's God talking to himself who says, it's not good for man to be alone. Notice Adam. Now, this is typical of men. It takes us a while to figure out the obvious. Adam doesn't figure it out until a couple of verses later. Um, as he's giving names to the livestock, and he's, he's essentially calling forth life and purpose from these animals, and he's saying, okay, hippo, you go do this and, like, eat people in the Amazon, and, you know, birds, you fly around and do this. Like, he's giving names to the animals, which is a sign of, in, in the Bible at least, of ownership and, and, and calling forth purpose. Um, but it takes, in the midst of that, Adam begins to realize, I don't have a partner with which to experience and extend the blessing of God. Something is off. So I want you to see this not as God kind of going, oops, or like, in other words, this is not an admission of a hidden design flaw that God then later corrects. This is a revelation, right? To Adam and to the world and to us, a revelation is something that was previously hidden and is now being revealed, right? It's a revelation of a hidden design feature. Not the admission of a hidden design flaw, but the revelation of a hidden design feature. God is the one who names the loneliness, and he is inviting, I think, Adam to existentially own this reality himself and to say, it's not good, I was not created. It's almost like God stepping back as a loving parent. And it, you know, like when your kids make those discoveries that are like so obvious, like they, they eat a cupcake for the first time, and you're just like, yes, this is amazing. Yes, this is the grace of God. Uh, you know, they, they, they experience something, and you're so happy. I think that's, that's the essence of what's happening here. God creates Adam, and he's like, all right, I, I can't wait for him to figure out that there's so much more than just him doing this task alone. I've created him for a relationship. This word here, it's not good is emphatic in the Hebrew. Essentially, what he's saying is, this is incongruent with the, way that, that with the greater design that I have for human beings. And so, because it's incongruent, it's unfulfilling, it's undesirable, and it's unsustainable. You can't live without relationship and partnership. So here's the reality. Here's the good news about loneliness. Loneliness, as hard as it is, as painful as it is, awakens us to a hunger for friendship. It awakens us to a hunger for intimacy. We were designed and created to experience deep communion with God and with other people. Loneliness is not an indictment here of something broken or incomplete. Loneliness is an invitation to something beautiful about what it means to be human. It's like an admission that I can't do this alone. I need other people. And guess what? That's really good news. Because the task of extending the blessing of God and experiencing the blessing of God, it's too much for anybody to do alone. There's no superheroes out here. Nobody has a cape. Nobody's capable of just going out and accomplishing the vocation of being fruitful and multiplying and extending the blessing of God on their own. You can't do it. Now, here's the irony here. 
as Adam is calling forth life and purpose in the animals, God is calling forth life and purpose in Adam. Right? Isn't that cool? He's calling forth life and purpose, and God's saying, hey, by the way, I've got something greater for you too. This, this brings us into the reality of the origin of friendship, which is there's no true life without love. To live is to love. To not love is to ultimately be impoverished and eventually to die. Right? People without meaningful connection, we know statistically speaking, it literally takes years off your life. So if you're like a loner and you pride yourself, just know the rest of us are going to be partying when you die 10 years premature. Right? Like there is statistical facts to back that up. So what's interesting to me about this as I was reading this is to, to kind of think about this and then to think about the fact that um, it, it's interesting to note that Adam wasn't actually alone. Did you know, have you noticed that? Like, who, who's he with? God. He's in communion with God. He has fellowship with God. He walked with God. He talked with God. He related to God. But here God says it's still not good for you to be alone. Even though you have me, it's not enough. Like, that's a weird thing to think about. God is kind of saying, even I cannot fill, because of the way I've designed you, all of the crevices of your heart and what it means to be human. And loneliness is what wakes us up. It's like smelling salts. It's like, oh my gosh, I need other people. So God here is speaking to loneliness not as a psychological pathology merely, but as a created longing placed inside of us for deep intimacy, for partnership, for collaboration, for friendship. And and get this, this is before sex. Like before we talk about gender roles, before we talk about marriage, before we talk about who's in charge, God says, I'm taking Eve out of your side. What does that mean? She's equal with you. She's a co-laborer. She's a partner. Treat her with dignity and respect because she's you. She's one of you. She's part of you. You're made from the same stuff. She's not to be ahead of you, like the kind of the vision that feminism casts for us. She's not to be behind you, the vision that uh, patriarchy casts for us, but alongside you as a partner, co-laboring together to extend and experience the blessing of God. We aren't fully human, nor can we fulfill our human vocation when we're alone. It's dangerous to be alone, right? Like some of the worst decisions you've made in your life were when you were feeling lonely. Some of the greatest regrets that you have in your life. When you were feeling lonely, you were feeling isolated. It is dangerous. Not only is it dangerous, it's utterly dehumanizing. The reason it feels terrible is because you were designed for more. You were designed for deep friendship. And that's the pattern. So moving on from origin to the pattern of friendship here. There's a pattern that God is establishing here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in our origin story that is kind of a thread that runs through the rest of the Bible. And this pattern is simply this, that we were created from friendship for friendship. We were created from friendship for friendship. I I say we're created from friendship because God himself is revealed here in Genesis and really the rest of the Bible. I I don't know if you ever thought about this. Like God's not just like uh, a doctrinal statement. Like what we see in Genesis 1 is God says, let us make man in our image. The Hebrew there is plural. Let us make man in our image. Who's God talking to? Talking to the Trinity, right? And, And Jesus goes on to show us in the book of John, for instance, that that community is really a community of friendship. At the core, it's a community of friends. The kind of friendship that's real and authentic and eternal, right? In this friendship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
There's a mutual exchange. It's not transactional. It's not one directional. It's a mutual giving and receiving all the time of all of the benefits of friendship, right? Like joy and love and knowledge and service and deference and intimacy and oneness, like that deep unity that we desire, that, that urge to merge, so to speak, with another human being that's not just physical but also emotional. Where do you think that comes from? That's not a human product. That's not something that we thought up. That's not just the result of uh, evolutionary forces. God himself created us out of friendship. We are created in his image to reflect him, to be like him in this friendship way, in this pattern of friendship. And in the heart of God, there's no domination. There's no exploitation. There's no hostility. There's no alienation. There's no broken relationships. There's no bitterness. It is pure love. And out of the overflow of that, God creates us for friendship. So we were created from friendship for friendship. Friendship with God, right? We see that in Genesis. And friendship with others. You could say that the rest of the Bible is an answer to this declaration that it's not good for us to be alone. And then he goes on to say, I will make him a helper fit for him unless you think that's some kind of diminutive term pushing women down. The word helper here is the same word that's used for God throughout the Old Testament, right? It's the same word that's used for God. It's a word of strength. It's a like opposite, a complementary partner who walks alongside and strengthens and enhances, not diminishes and weakens. We were created for friendship. The rest of the Bible is a story of friendship. God creates the, the human community. After sin enters into the world, he comes to Abraham and he calls Abraham his what? Friend. He goes to Moses and he creates the, the new uh, Israel, the people of God, the Jewish Hebrew people. And he calls Moses. He speaks to Moses face to face like a friend. God pursues friendship with us, with his people. We betray God, right? And then God seeks reconciliation with us through sacrificial, life-giving love. When Jesus shows up in the New Testament, that's why he freaked all the religious people out, because we don't get friendship. Religious people are usually the worst at friendship. And Jesus shows up, and he starts befriending all these minorities, sexual minorities, racial minorities. He befriends outsiders, what they called, uh, what the religious people called the tax collectors and the sinners, which was a very pejorative term. And Jesus starts to make friends. He starts to throw parties and have them over to his house. He starts to gather. I mean, this is God himself in the flesh. God doesn't come and just show up on a mountain like, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz with a microphone behind a sheet. You know, here's the kingdom of God. All you, you know, peons, surrender. This is not like some kind of like a Star Wars takeover. God shows up and he takes on flesh. He becomes a baby and he, he, he calls around him a community of friends. That's amazing. He's called what? A friend of sinners. He gathers around him 12 disciples, not slaves to just do his bidding, his friends. That's why there's a breathtaking verse in John 15 when Jesus is about to depart from his friends. These men he spent the last couple years laying down his life for and teaching and instructing and challenging. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. God calls us Friends, if that doesn't take your breath away, you don't understand how spectacular that is. Those of us who are opposed to God and his purposes, God comes and he says, you're my friend. 
the ones who would abandon him, the ones who would betray him, who by the time he gets to the cross are scattered and gone, God says, you are my friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus had all kinds of friends. He had the 120 who he healed and touched. He had the 70 who he sent on a mission. He had the 12 that he called, that he wanted to know, the Bible says. And then he had the three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And then some would argue he had even inside of that an inner circle, Lazarus, one of his best friends whom he loved dearly, and the apostle John, who would later go on to write about God's love in his epistles more than any other author in the New Testament. All of this, and then think about the last moments of Jesus' life before he dies. What does he do in the garden? He calls for his friends. Hey, I need you guys to come with me. Stay awake. I need your friendship. If Jesus himself needed friendship, who are we to say that we don't? Who are we to act as if we don't? This is the invitation for us. This is the call to what the ancients used to call spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship. Friendship with God, the pursuit of God. In the context of the pursuit of relationships with other people. These two always must be held together. So let me say two things about this and then we'll wrap with some application. There is a false dichotomy out there, um, I think, in a lot of Christian teaching that, that almost sets up, and, and I have a graphic here, John, can you fill that up? Uh, almost sets up our relationship with other people and our relationship with God in some kind of a hostility or opposition or isolation or competition. And so it's like we have our relationship with other people and we have our relationship with God and we feel this tension of having to choose. Like if I have an hour, do I read my Bible or do I spend time with my friends? The Bible never presents that dichotomy. That is a false dichotomy. Augustine, one of the early church fathers in his book Confessions, talks a lot about um, the, the complementary nature, the interdependence between our friendship with God and our friendship with others. And he said it is wrong to say, for instance, all I really need is God. All I really need is God's love and, and everything else will be taken care of. That is not biblical, right? In the garden, we see it. We see it in our own experience. It's not true that all we need is God. Is God. Now, it's true that primarily our first great need is our need for God and to be loved by God, to be known by God. But that's not all that we need. We need both, and so we shouldn't have to choose between loving God and loving our friends. To love God is to learn how to love my friends, and to love my friends is to learn how to love God. Each of these relationships are, are interdependent. They should strengthen and deepen and enrich the others. Friendship with God is the power for friendship with others, and friendship with others, you know this if you have good friends, creates a sense of powerlessness that drives us back to dependence on God. I can't be a friend unless I'm friends with God. And I can't be friends with God if I'm not also friends with other people, his children. First John 1, this is exactly what Jesus' friend said. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul Waddell, who wrote a great book called Becoming Friends, one of my favorites on friendship, says this, we only experience intimacy when we are in God and living for God. The deeper our life in God, the deeper our intimacy with one another. This is why, to put it bluntly for Christians, intimacy begins not with sex, but with prayer. Can't have one with the other. By the way, I think this is why people are freaking out about loneliness right now. 
Because when you remove friendship with God from the equation, as we do secularize more and more, and we move away from a robust vision of friendship with God that the ancients have always had, even back to the Greeks, like pagans understood. I think it was Aristotle, and and, and Plato wrote about this, and uh, 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 Cicero wrote about this. Um, Aristotle and his Nicomachean uh, Ethics, which some of you probably read in college a long time ago, actually spent two books on friendship, and he said, friendship is the flower of ethics and the root of politics. So like everybody's known for a long time that we need friendship. But um, I think this, is, this, this whole loss of friendship with God is why we put so much apocalyptic weight on friendship, because if I don't have friendship, then my life has no meaning, right? And so we put all of these expectations on our friends, on our marriage partners, to be for us what really we need God to help share in to be for us and our community around us to be for us. And when you put those kind of apocalyptic expectations on another human being, you're in for a crushing experience. So interdependence and then transformation. This is how God changes us. This is how God changes us. Any good friendship um, is not cozy and it's not safe It's dangerous and risky and hard because any good friendship changes you as you surrender uh, yourself. You know, you realize you can't control your friends, right? You surrender to them and you become like them over time as you share uh, in one another's lives and hearts and dreams and desires and and frustrations and sins. And that's why I think for some of us, we're terrified of friendship. (laughs) We're terrified of committing ourselves to a friendship. And we think if I just move cities, if I just, you know, will move to another place or I'll change churches, then it'll solve the friendship thing. But the reality is you'll repeat the same pattern somewhere else. It's not going to fix what's broken in you, right? And it's terrifying to us to sit down in a place and to really figure out what it looks like to experience true friendship. Again, Waddell says this, Christian liturgy and worship should form the church into a community of friends of God. Such a hopeful and magnanimous way of understanding our lives is also ineluctably risky because to live in friendship with God is to will what God wills, to seek what God seeks, and through a lifetime of faithful, committed love, to become one with a God who has a dream for the world, we often as Christians strangely fear, a dream Christians call the reign of God. And so what do we do with friendship? This is a big vision for what we're going to call in this series uh, spiritual friendship, which has long roots, and we'll talk about this over the next several weeks in the Christian tradition, spiritual friendship. We often settle. Aelred of Raveau, who kind of took Socrates' stuff and, and essentially like Christianized it and, and redeemed it, in my mind at least, was a Cistercian monk in the 12th century. And he was writing about friendship to the other monks in his monastery to help them think about which friendships could be life-giving and which ones could be dangerous and life-taking or draining. And he identifies in this three kinds of friendship. And I think for most of us, we live on the plane of the first two, and we call them friendship when they're really not. Uh, The first one he talked about is carnal friendship. This is a friendship that is built around either vice or pleasure, right? You know what this is like if you're in a fraternity or sorority. You certainly understand a friendship built around vice, uh, doing the, the the wrong things, kind of pulling each other in uh, towards uh, things that are not helpful. This is kind of like an addiction community. This is that friend that's like super affirming, uh, but never challenges anything. Uh, it's built around kind of like safety and comfort, Um, oftentimes. It could also be built around pleasure, right? Like uh, an affinity. We live in the same neighborhood. We have kids the same age. It could be built around just boredom. Like I have nothing to do, so these are the people I go line dancing with on 86th Street. You know, these are the people that I hit the bar with uh, on Friday night because I have nothing better to do. Um, But the danger of of a carnal friendship, nothing wrong with having fun together. 
But if that becomes the end goal and it's built around mutual pleasure or affinity, what happens when the affinity changes? What happens when your kids grow up and leave and graduate high school? What happens when you blow out your knee playing basketball and you can no longer do it anymore? What happens when you change jobs? What happens when you change neighborhoods, right? Like these are not bad things in and of themselves, but it's too fragile. And oftentimes these kinds of relationships don't challenge us to become our best selves. They actually pull us down to become a worse version of ourselves. Carnal friendships, worldly friendships, which are just like partnerships that are built around mutual advantage, networking, uh, business relationships. They're very transactional. And again, uh, there's nothing wrong with having networking relationships, but they tend to be superficial, right? They tend to be built on this idea that I provide something for you, you provide something for me. And when that exchange expires, then the friendships go away. And oftentimes, they can become dark. They can become full of flattery and deception because we're using people as a commodity to do something for us rather than really the biblical idea of friendship is I love you because I love God and I love God because I love you. This friendship exists to build you up, not to make me feel better about myself or to give me something. So what do we do with all this in closing? I just want to, again, like stoke the fires of your imagination a little bit. I have no prescriptions. I have no like here's the exact way this is going to look because we have a church that is very diverse. It's very diverse from an age standpoint, very diverse from a cultural standpoint, very diverse from a neighborhood standpoint, different seasons of life. I can't tell you exactly what this is going to look like in your life, but I just want to cast a vision for us and ask the question again, what would it look like for us to spend our lifetime together cultivating the soil to become a community that experiences and extends deep meaningful, transformational friendship with each other. I, I, I really, truly believe we have a lot of room to grow here, right? We're a young church, and oftentimes people get wounded, they get frustrated, they get upset, and, and it's easy like to just look at the church and say, well, the church is messed up, and the church has got this going, or this is happening, and the reality is we just stink at friendship, <laughs> and we're learning what it looks like to be a community of the friends of God. And so what if our church reflected this primal and essential relational orientation? What would it look like for us to view the church, not as a place where I just come to worship, not as a place where I come to get something, not as a place where I come just to make friends, to network with people who are like me, not just to come to church uh, because I can get something from it, but rather to say, no, this is a community of the friends of God. And we are here to befriend one another and to befriend God and to pursue deep transformational spiritual friendship understanding that this is what it means to be truly human two things i think that involves for us one is a lot of confession <laughs> a lot of confession just naming it and saying hey we're not there the word confession in the bible homologeo means to say the same thing or to agree with so we can agree with god and say it's not good for us to be alone and oftentimes we settle for being alone rather than pursuing. Some of us, we get busy and we ratchet up the intensity because we're lonely. We get busier at church. We serve. We try to press, press down the loneliness and not deal with it. Um, that's fake intimacy. Intensity is not intimacy. Uh, for others of us, we just get indifferent. We get cynical. We get callous because we've been wounded somewhere else. We've experienced church somewhere else. We come from a family where intimacy is not there. And we just begin to extrapolate out and say, you know what? There's no hope for me to actually have deep friendship. You're wrong. God says you're wrong. 
if you are connected to the vine of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is doing is building a community of vital, life-giving, healthy friendship among us. And we ought to be growing and reflecting that. And so it's going to involve us confessing um, the loneliness that we have. And look, man, I'm number one, I've experienced that. My family's experienced experience that in moving to Indy. Um, it, it's, it's lonely, it's hard. But when we see that loneliness in our lives, rather than uh, becoming demanding, you're not doing this for me. Rather than projecting on other people and lobbying accusations at them because they're not being good friends to us, rather than running away from our pain, what would it look like to just stand in our pain? To stay with your pain and to realize that it's in this pain that God wants to do the most beautiful work of transformation in your life. If you will stand in that pain, Jesus says, lift up your heads. Salvation is near. Liberation is almost here. Stay with your pain. Pain is an invitation. It's an invitation to shatter the illusions and the false expectations we have of others and ourselves and to acknowledge even the many ways that we've been complicit in facilitating those illusions. We facilitate those illusions often unconsciously in all kinds of ways. And so loneliness is a symptom of this deep hunger that we have for friendship with God. And it's in naming that longing and staying with that pain that we can experience true communion with God and real fellowship and friendship with other people, the kind of fellowship that's truthful, that's vulnerable, that is open to being hurt, that's transparent, but that takes responsibility for saying, I've been created in the image of God to experience friendship, and I'm going to die literally give my life away, just like Jesus did, to secure this friendship that he's promised me and us. Henry Nouwen, in his great book, Wounded Healer, says it like this, the more I think about loneliness, the more I think that the wound of loneliness is actually like the Grand Canyon, a deep incision in the surface of our existence that has become an inexhaustible source of beauty and self-understanding. Therefore, I would like to voice loudly and clearly what might seem unpopular and maybe even disturbing. The Christian way of life does not take away our loneliness. It protects and cherishes it as a precious gift. When we are impatient, when we want to give up our loneliness and try to overcome the separation and incompleteness we feel, we easily relate to our human world with devastating expectations. We ignore what we already know with a deep-seated, intuitive knowledge that no love or friendship, no intimate embrace or tender kiss, no community, commune, or collective, no man or woman will ever be able to fully satisfy our desire to be released from our lonely condition. God designed us for friendship. He created us for intimacy. What would it look like for us to have the kind of commitment to that that Jesus had? kind of patience that Jesus had, the kind of intentionality with the way that he lived, the hospitality that God showed to create the conditions for it, the compassion to see other people as also fellow sojourners carrying their own pain, carrying their own wounds, their own loneliness that nobody knows about except for them. And what would it be like for us just to share that burden together for the rest of our lives until Jesus comes back and seals the promise of that's why he came, to make us friends with God. He laid down his life for it, to create friendship between us and God and other people. I'm going to pray for us. I want to invite you just to bow your head.
maybe just to take a moment to inventory your own heart, to audit your own life, your friendships, your pain, your loneliness, just to ask yourself, what does that look like? What would it look like for me to create space in my life to see my friendships as as the very place where God is calling me to experience friendship with him and to realize as I grow in my friendship with God, I can grow in my friendship with others. And as I experience friendship with others, I can actually become a better friend to God himself. God has purchased this for us and he wants it for us. And so maybe this is an opportunity for confession and then a recommitment of ourselves to be for somebody, not to demand from someone, but to become for someone the kind of friend that Jesus talks about here and that the writers of the Bible talk about here. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a friend of Jesus, we'd invite you to come. Receive communion. It's only with his help and his grace and his supernatural miracles on a daily basis in our lives that we can step into this kind of rich friendship. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to come. We have stations at the front, stations at the back. Tear a piece of the bread off and dip it into your cup and return to your seat. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a friend of Jesus, we'd invite you just to stay in your seat as others come. And consider what it might look like for you to receive the friendship that God is offering you this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll sing a few songs and send you back out. <sighs> Father, we thank you that you've created us for friendship from friendship. You've created us for spiritual friendship. Pursue you in the context of other people. It is what it means to be truly human. So God, I pray that you would restore in us a vision for friendship. Teach us how to be good friends as we commune with you and as we worship together, as we serve together, as we exist in missional community together, as we experience woundedness even together, and as we're vulnerable and people reject us and people betray us. God, may we see that not as an invitation to run away or just to to become embittered, but as an invitation, God to keep pursuing those friendships, knowing that it is in those friendships that we will truly see you and experience you. And then, and then even more than that, have something real to offer the world. How many of our neighbors are lonely and isolated and need a touch from the friends of God, who need to see the justice of God, the reconciliation of God, the friendship of God tangibly demonstrated in the life of his community and how often, God, we fall short. Forgive us. And God, renew our vows, our commitment to one another to be friends of God together. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.